middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas, and beyond with Tommy Castor, Weston Mills, and Blake Cripps. This is Keeper of the Games. Welcome to Keeper of the Games. I like to call us the wildly underqualified yet mildly entertaining podcast that is all about sports in Wichita, Kansas, the air capital, and beyond. I'm Tommy Castor. We're back for another episode here of Keeper of the Games as we dig out of the Arctic blast that this part of the country has received over the last few days. And uh, I got to start off by saying, Weston, I know it's probably colder in Kansas City than it is in Wichita right now. But, you know, today, at least in Wichita, the high got up to like 21. It felt like a balmy 60 degrees outside after what we've seen the last few days. Uh, yeah, 18. I think it got up to 18 here. So that felt pretty nice. But uh, we I don't know if you guys I know you guys were, were pretty dang cold, but I think we hit, you know, up negative 30, 31 uh, over the last couple of days. I lost power for about an hour yesterday. I don't know if you guys caught got caught up in the, those rolling blackouts. Uh, but I mean, it's just been brutal. It really, I, don't, I don't think I ever remember anything like this. Yeah, it's been absolutely insane. And so I'm glad that we are starting to thaw out a little bit from that, from what we saw a few days ago. And uh, I'm also glad that we were able to pull Blake Cripps away from the Australian Open tennis uh, tournament going on right now, the big major. Uh, I'm just I'm shocked that you're here right now as opposed to not watching tennis. Well, fa- fantastic tournament so far. I've been really enjoying it. I- I'll share this quick anecdote about being cold up in Nebraska, Fairbury, at my first job at KUTT and KGMT. There was a stretch where we went about two weeks where the temperature did not get above single digits. And I remember walking outside. The coldest it got was a negative 37 wind chill. And there was snow on the ground from November to March, there was a every day had snow on the ground, at least some. And I remember walking out to work one day and thinking, and it was 10 degrees outside, and thinking, man, it's not that bad out today. And that's when I knew I had hit rock bottom. <laughs> well, so what you're telling me is that what we've been going through the last few days is is, is nothing. You've been completely, you've been prepared for it for years now, right? This is cold. I, I mean, you, I don't think that there's any way that you get prepared for this. They say, oh, you know, you just get used to it. You get prepared for this. You don't get prepared for this. It's freaking cold. And I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you guys. There was a part of me as recently as Tuesday that I was thinking about us recording this new episode. And I was legitimately concerned that we were going to have a power outage or at least one of us was going to have a power outage in the middle of trying to record this. I don't think it's going to happen now, but uh, yeah, I was a little bit concerned about that. So um, fingers crossed that we can get through this entire episode uh, with no issues, but I'm glad to see you guys, Weston Mills, Blake Cripps here on Keeper of the Games. Before we dive into our episode, again, just a reminder to hit like, to hit subscribe, download, listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms. We're on every single major streaming platform out there like Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, all the major ones. Our website, cogsports.com, kogsports.com. You can watch full episodes on YouTube and Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games, and you should as we have upped our production quality pretty significantly here on the program. And of course, you can follow us anytime on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod, that's at kogpod. On this episode, we've got a lot to get to, including 
a big trade for the Kansas City Royals. A little bit of a look at their spring training uh, up ahead. The Wichita Wind Surge starting to get some things into motion for their season coming up. The Wichita Whip Around and a lot more. But we begin on this episode with our College Hoops Roundup. And guys, we are starting out by talking about the Wichita State Shockers. We'll get into the Sunflower Showdown, which is actually going on as we're recording this show. In fact, I've got it on here off to the side. We'll talk about KU and K-State in just a few minutes, but kicking off the show by talking about a massive, massive matchup that is on the way Thursday night inside the roundhouse as Wichita State takes on the Houston Cougars, who are currently ranked number six in the AP Top 25. This is, again, a massive game for Wichita State. And at one point earlier this week, because of the weather, we weren't sure it was going to happen. There have been all of these delays and pauses and rescheduling and postponements in college basketball this year. Uh, and I thought it was going to happen again, but for weather. But it does look like Houston at, at right now, at this moment, is on their way to Wichita. In fact, they probably already landed in the ICT in anticipation of the game on Thursday night. So, Blake, I will start with you, and then Weston, uh, you can go after this. Simply put, just a, just a quick question for you. How big of a matchup in your mind is this game for Wichita State? Well, I, I mean, when you're talking about several decades since it's been, since Wichita State has done something, I mean, this matchup qualifies as that. I was reading in the Wichita Eagle today, Taylor Eldridge had the story, game notes are out. This would be the biggest win for Wichita State, their first top six win since 1967 when they beat number two Louisville 84-78. to since then, they have lost six games, 0-6, since the, against the top six. Um, their last opportunity to play a top six game was 1992. Of course, they beat number five Cincinnati, but that was on the road. The last top 10 win against a, a team in Coke Arena was back in 2015. They beat Northern Iowa in that huge game, number 10 Panthers, 74-60. So when you're talking, it's been 50 years since Wichita State has been able to grab a win this massive. Yeah, I mean, in a historical context, this is a huge game. Isn't that surprising, though? I mean, just because I read that same article, too, and just with pretty much the decade of dominance that Wichita State has had, for some reason, I just would have thought they would have had a, a win like that. And they just they haven't. It's been 50 years. It's kind of crazy. When, when you have a, a conference like the Missouri Valley that those last few years they were so horrible, who are they going to play in conference that's going to bring that kind of a ranking to the party? It's going to have to be a non-conference, and a lot of non-conference teams have been a little wary of playing the Shockers because they've been so good. It's not a guaranteed win. Not every team wants to challenge themselves like that in the non-conference schedule. So I think it's got a better chance of happening now in the American for sure, but in the Valley the last five years – no chance the value was horrible. Well, and, and you've even seen, you know, you've seen stretches where both the Missouri Valley and then obviously the AAC, you know, have had, you know, multiple teams get in or multiple teams be good, but it, it always just feels like there's just the one team, right? That kind of is the dominant one. And then a few others that, Hey, they strung together a few quality non-con wins and, and this and that. And you just, you, you just haven't had those matchups. And then, like you said, Blake, because Wichita State is, you know, a mid-major, even though I think the narrative on mid-majors has has changed and is still changing over the years, um, it's hard to get that that quality non-con game scheduled because it's it's kind of a lose-lose for you know some of the blue bloods or even just a, a power five 
perennial winner in, in any one of those leagues because if they if that team wins well, they were supposed to be Wichita State, Wichita State's a mid-major. And if they lose, oh my God, it's a huge upset. You know, it, and again, I think that narrative's changing though. Uh, you know, and I, you I guess- really we consider what? American conference teams to be mid-majors at this point? I mean, it's the sixth best I conference. Do. Yeah, you do. I do. I mean, if you're outside, the, and I, I get that it wouldn't be classified that way, but if you're outside the uh, power five, I mean, well, and it, look at I it this way. Power six, honestly, honestly. I mean, you can, well, you why can should the that? American be in that conversation? Because they're going to get one team in the tournament. I mean, you can't have a, a you can't, you're not a big major conference if you're only going to get one of your, I mean, and, and I'm going to embarrass myself by not knowing this. How many teams are in the American? Is it 14 <laughs> or 16? No, it's less I mean, than that. I have twelve. Sure? You I have 12. twelve. Okay, and Navy but way, does not gonna... play basketball in. I think it's eleven actually, because Navy does not play. Uh, well, Wichita State replaces them because Navy only plays football in the American, that's replacing right. Wichita State. So I think twelve and is I, the right number. And I guess that's what I was thinking about. But either way, I mean, if you're only going to get one in, and and they're, I mean, I just, I, I don't think they're the power six if if you're consistently not putting. And I get this year. This year is it would be I don't know a down year for the American, right? I mean, they're typically getting two, three, you know, teams in the tournament. But uh, you know, I, I, I anyways, I, I think we kind of strayed away from from the question, though. I do think you know, this is obviously such a big game. And I I think that hopefully Wichita state as a program is getting to a a place where you can see more of these big games, whether it's because they're in the American or now they've kind of established themselves as a great program where maybe these major schools don't look at it as, okay, you know, look, if, if we were to lose Wichita state, nobody's considering that an upset because look, they're a good established program. So, so hopefully we're getting there with Wichita state basketball. Correction and retraction. There are 11 teams in the American Conference. I had that right. Hey, how about that? I know. So there you go. Uh, Houston coming into this game, they absolutely took it to USF a week ago. So it would have been Wednesday, February 10th. Final score of that game was 82 to 65. So 17 point win on the road for Houston. And then going back the game before uh, Saturday, February 6th, this got a lot of national attention uh, just because of the opponent. Houston, the number six team in the country, beat Our Lady of the Lake. Final score of that game was 112 to 46. Those are the two games that the Cougars have played since they were upset on the road against East Carolina by nine uh, the first Wednesday of February. So again, it's it's a pretty, uh, not just a pretty important game, but it's a very important game, uh, not only for Wichita State, but for the conference in general. It's, it's a conference that, you know, Weston, like you said, uh, as, as of right now, probably will only send one team to the tournament and that's Houston. Now there are chances for not only Wichita state to get into the, into the tournament, but also SMU to get into the tournament as well. This is a pretty brutal stretch of games, a three game stretch for the shockers starting with this Houston game at home. Then they play back-to-back games against SMU. Now, Blake, Joe Lenardi from black bracketology, who is uh, obviously an expert. He's not the only expert out there. He's kind of subjective when it comes to what he wants to do bracket wise. He's got SMU currently on the next four out. Wichita State is nowhere on that list, but he did say on social media this week that if Wichita State can upset Houston, then he would put Wichita State on the next four out list. So as far as bracket seating is concerned, we all know how important this game is, not only for just the standings in the American and just the even the shot for the Shockers to have a, a 
a, a hope to get into the big dance. But just overall bracket wise, where do you see um, the, the conference right now? And I know Weston talked a little bit about that just a moment ago, but where do you see that? Real-time RPI has the American Athletic Conference as the seventh best conference in the country. And obviously, it's a little bit misleading because you look at the teams ahead of them. You've got the Power Five conferences in front of them. Obviously, the Big 12 is first. Uh, you know, I think that there are some people up in Big Ten country who would say the Big Ten is by far and away the best conference. And like I said, that's a discussion that we could have, probably a discussion for another show, though. But you've got the Power Five conferences in front, and then the only the outlier is the West Coast Conference. And obviously, if you subtract Gonzaga from the West Coast Conference, you've got a lot of uh, BYU is a fairly solid team, and St. Mary's is a team that that can be you know discussed as as being an NCAA tournament team. They've been the second bid for a lot of years, but I think that Wichita State is kind of staring that next four you know, line, that's about where they should be. Wichita State is currently 35th in the RPI. They're the second highest RPI in the conference right now, according to real-time RPI, which doesn't necessarily take into account everything. I'm not sure of what Wichita State's net is. Wichita State's uh, strength of schedule is 44. I believe firmly, and I still, I, I have still not gotten off the shocker bandwagon. If the shocker at, at this point, because they have not been able to play the games, and there are games that they have lost, not in in on the scoreboard, but they've lost due to not being able to play them. I think we're at the point right now that there are two scenarios in which Tusk State gets into the tournament. If they win out, if they win out on the regular season, I think that they will be in as long as they don't lose in the first round of the American Athletic Conference tournament or they win the tournament. I think those are the two scenarios that gets Wichita State in. I I cannot and I will not believe that if Wichita State ends the regular season with where they have five games left or six, if you include the tournament, I, I will not be persuaded that if Wichita State wins the rest of their games, that they are not in the tournament. I, I, I can't be persuaded that that's the case. But uh, I guess my question, and, and Weston, I'll, I'll throw it to you. You know, realistically, I mean, we, we all know that the next three games for Wichita State, are it's brutal. I mean, it, it's just a juggernaut playing Houston at home, but then, you know, back-to-back against SMU. Realistically, what are we looking at for the Shockers, it, you know, in those three games? Are we looking, you know, I don't know if there's anybody out there that's going to say, oh, yeah, Wichita State's going to go 3-0 and in that three-game stretch. We know how, how essential these games are for the Shockers. When, what do we think is going to be important there? And I guess Blake, you want to, you'd like to answer that first. Yeah, I, I'm no, I'm. You said who is who's saying they're going to go three and zero? This guy. Oh. I'm projecting oh, it right now. Wichita State is going five and zero to end the regular season. That's not. A, you're right. Very accurate take. Thank you very much. Appreciate the compliment as always. Yeah, I'll put myself out there. I think they're going to win out. I think they're going to go to the NCAA tournament and win these three games that they have to win. And you get two wins against SMU, who's in the top sixty, and one against Houston. For me, you're going to be in. You're just going to be in. Okay, we I have the pie hardest. in the sky answer. What's the realistic answer? Oh, Weston? God. Okay. <laughs> well, look, here's the thing. I, I think it's going to be tough to play SMU back-to-back. I'm almost more concerned about that than I am against Houston. I think Wichita State absolutely can come out and beat Houston. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't think that they can. Um, of course, it's going to be a tough game. I'm not certainly not suggesting that. Um, 
but I'm I'm more concerned with the back-to-back against SMU. I think it is incredibly tough to play the same team twice, to keep the same level of motivation up twice. And then just from there, when you go and beat a team, I sometimes I think it's easier to take, you know, as the loser to take that game film and say, okay, this is what they did to us. And here's what we're going to do next time to counteract that. Then it is to go and beat a team and then watch your winning game film and go, okay, well, here's the things that we still didn't do well and put together a different game plan. I mean, it's hard to, to divert away from a winning game plan, right? So, and I, you know, it's just a lot to beat a team back to back. So I'm almost more concerned about that stretch than I am the, the game against Houston. And a good, you know, comparable is, you know, we saw Kansas play Iowa State, which is one of the worst teams probably in the country, and struggled pretty heavily the first half, I guess I would say, of that second game. Obviously, they went on to, you know, to cruise in that game eventually, but it's Iowa State. Um, but kind of that shows just that, you know, it's just hard to get up for that second game and then, you know, the adjustments that are made. So that would be my bigger concern is, is the second run against SMU. So I'll tell you, I think that what we're going to end up seeing, just and just my opinion, I think that you know it, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility, like you guys have said that the Shockers can get up for Houston and, and beat the Cougars at home. Let's keep in mind they only lost by seven on the road in the first meeting against the Cougars. So you know that was a closer game than I think a lot of people anticipated. So I think that they can win inside the Roundhouse. I think they can also beat SMU, take one of two from them. You know I. Again, I'm kind of with you, Weston. I'm not sure that they can take both in back-to-back sets. I think they could probably get them at home. So I'm going to go ahead and book that. And then I think that they'll have not an easy time, but I think that they'll be able to beat Tulane on the road and Temple on the road. And I think realistically, you're looking at Wichita State uh, you know, going three and two in their last five games. That would put them overall at 11 and four in the conference and with an overall record of 15 and six uh, before the conference tournament starts. Now, again, that's probably not enough to get Wichita state into the tournament, that resume alone. And they're going to have to do some work in, in the tournament. I think that they're going to be right on the bubble and, you know, when that ends up happening, there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether or not Wichita state is deserving of a bid or not. And if they can win the conference tournament, then that entire conversation is put to bed. That's kind of the way that I see it playing. Playing out. Blake, I want to ask you, going back to this game on Thursday inside the Roundhouse, like I just said, the Shockers, you know, they only lost by seven to Houston the first time around. What's it going to take for Wichita State in this game to get the W against the Cougars? Well, I think that fast breaks are going to be really, really important. And, you know, RJ Allen, the head coach of Newman, has told me several times that said, you know, he thinks that that the transition play from offense to defense, defense to offense is the toughest play in basketball. And Houston is eighth in the country in what they call potential quick points on Haslametrics, field goal attempts that occur within 10 seconds of getting a steal. So they are really good at turning you over and then getting a shot up because you don't have a lot of time to set up your defense if you're taking a shot within 10 seconds. They take a lot of field goals. They lead the country in field goals attempted per 100 trips up the court against an average defense. They don't turn it over. They're 19th in offensive efficiency and third in defensive efficiency. So if you can win the turnover battle and win the transition game and allow them you know, decrease the amount of time that they have to set up what is a really good half-court defense and get your own transition points and try to turn off 
their transition that they're so good at, I think that that's going to be a real big advantage for Wichita State if they can do that. Now, obviously, not necessarily the easiest thing to do because Houston's, you know, the number six team in the country. You know, they they allow the sixth fewest field goals attempted per 100 trips up court in the country. So they're really good at stopping teams from taking shots and they turn teams over. So I'm not saying this is easy, but if they can do it, I think that that's going to be the recipe for success win the fast break battle against Houston. That's my number one thing. There are other keys, but I would say it's the number one key for Wichita State to win this game. You know, so I, I want to talk about the Houston game, but I do want to go back for a second and talk, point out a possibility. So let's say the Shockers were to lose to Houston, or I'm sorry, to beat Houston and then lose to SMU, and we end the regular season with Houston and Wichita State having the same rec- record in conference. Do we know what the tiebreaker is? Assuming that that means they split, I don't know what's what follows that, or or does the American share a conf- regular sure season conference? Most conferences would share the regular season okay. championship, and there would be a tiebreaker for the number one seed in the tournament. But in terms of the championships the conference typically recognizes all of the tied teams, even if there is a, you know, a situation where the head to head tiebreaker would favor one team. If one team swept the other, both teams would still be recognized as conference champions. So, and I guess Houston ends the season with Memphis too. So I don't think it's out of the question potentially that Wichita state could, could lose, you know, one of the games and still end up winning the regular season American. And I, I would just again kind of back to your point Blake I would I know it's not an automatic bid but boy it'd be hard to not put the American Conference regular season champion into the tournament so just saying um, but so going back to the game against Houston you know I, we're all, we're looking at two things here defensively for the Shockers and and I know well you talked about a lot of it but two players that the the Shockers really have to focus on stopping and that's Quentin Grimes and uh, Marcus Sasser and uh, old Quentin Grimes who's really come on he used to be uh, you know played for Kansas uh, gosh is that didn't two seasons ago now I'm I don't know if I'm yeah yes. yeah so and boy he has really come on for Houston so uh, I think that's going to be you know potentially a matchup for Dexter Dennis um, you know see how so how he matches up against Quentin Grimes Quentin Grimes big uh, you know, athletic guard, and that's obviously what we see out of Dexter Dennis as well. But I think it's going to be Dexter Dennis on the defensive end, and then you know, I don't think there's any surprise. What what can Tyson Etienne do on the other end? So I think keeping it simple. That's that's kind of my two takeaways for the game. Quentin Grimes had 22 points, by the way, in the first matchup that the Wichita State Shockers had uh, against Houston on the road. And, uh, you know, the the other thing that I, I want to point out is that, you know, Weston, you mentioned Houston's schedule. Not only do they finish the regular season with Memphis, who is a top tier American team, but they finish with Memphis on the road uh, to add that, you know, a little bit extra, you know, difficulty. Um, so I, I don't disagree with you. I think there is an opportunity where, you know, Houston could drop one more game and that could open the door a little bit more for the shockers but you have to take care of business on on thursday night regardless inside the roundhouse you have to be able to do that and control your own destiny and the best way for the shockers to do that in my opinion is to not play like they did the last the last time out especially in the closing stretch of the last game this was right after we released our our last episode a week ago the shockers went on the road to take on UCF and for some reason i don't know what it is blake when the shockers play UCF 
the, the, it's always a, a it's been a tight game both uh, both times out this year for Wichita State and in this case the Shockers escape with a 61 to 60 victory I know you were watching that game your thoughts about the final moments and the final stretch of that game for Wichita State well, yeah, I was listening to it, and and you look back. I don't know if you know. I'm not going to answer your question that way, but you look think back to the last few games for Wichita State. Temple was a three point win. Central Florida was a one point win. Tulane was a single digit win. That's uh, UCF. The first time was an overtime and a five point win. So this is not just the Central Florida game. This has been the last few stretches. This last stretch for Wichita State, it's been about what three weeks going back to January 30th since they didn't play the Cincinnati game. And then they, you know, they struck they obviously lost by 20 at Memphis. So this has been a situation where Wichita State has not been able to kind of execute well enough offensively down the stretch. They've played good defense, I think, in all these games, maybe with the exception. Coach Brown probably would not like the defense so much against UCF in Wichita, the overtime win. But the other games, they've played well enough defensively. It's been a lack of offensive execution down the stretch, not making shots, turning the ball over a little bit too much. Um, And also, I'd like to point out, not doing themselves a ton of favors at the free throw line, which I think could also be really big in this Houston game to wrap it back to the Cougars. Houston is 287th in the country in personal fouls per game. They average 19 personal fouls per game. Wichita State is second in the American Conference in free throws attempted and free throws made, but they're only seventh in free throw percentage at 69.6%. So if Wichita State could shoot a little bit better at the free throw line, get Houston in some early foul trouble, that could also be a really big benefit for Wichita State in that Houston game. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And when it comes to shooting, you know, when you look at how Wichita State is defending shooters, especially beyond the arc, only one team has made more than 36% from three. um, And that's Memphis against the Shockers. So, you know, defensively. And yeah, and you know, we talked about defensively, you know, how Dexter Dennis has really stepped up over the last several weeks or so. I think, you know, the one thing we know about Houston, especially with guys like Quentin Grimes on that on that roster, they can shoot the basketball. They like to shoot the basketball a lot. And let's not kid ourselves, guys. We're not just talking about a, a, a game against a formidable opponent. We're legitimately talking about a game against a national title contender. That's what the Houston Cougars are. That's what Kelvin Sampson has in his squad. So I absolutely agree with you, Blake. Defensively, Wichita State is going to have to turn it up um, and and guard like crazy if they want a chance to to get out of this game. My last question about the matchup before we move on. um, I noticed this uh, a little bit ago, kind of surprising to me, but I want to get your guys' take on it. Houston, as of right now, is a 10-point favorite. Does Houston cover that spread inside the roundhouse on Thursday night? I mean, I know what my answer is. Yeah, I'm going to say absolutely not as well. I know that's your your answer too, Blake. There's there's no, no way. And and this is it's kind of a perfect segue, Tommy, because you had just mentioned that, you know, you think Kelvin Sampson thinks he has a, you know, a national contending team. And, and as I was sitting here, I was kind of looking at some stuff. It, you know, I just was thinking to myself, "Boy, 
in my head, there's just not that big of, of gap between the talent I see from Wichita State and the talent that I see from Houston. How is Houston ranked number six in the nation? And I think they are going to be a prime candidate for an early upset when when March rolls around. Wow. If you look if you look at the schedule, they have only beaten number fourteen Texas Tech. That is the only ranked team that they've beaten all year. I, I guess I just don't understand. I, I get they're seventeen and two, but what about that schedule? shows that they're the sixth best team in the country when you only have one ranked win. And then your two losses coming to Tulsa in East Carolina. I mean, I'm just not buying that this team is who they say they are. I'm not saying they're not good, that they're not, not that they're not tournament worthy, you know, and I certainly think it would be a big win for Wichita State. But again, you play the, the cards that are dealt and they just haven't beaten anybody that impresses me. Not one team. So I you think know, I under- that they- the, the answer is that there's only you either believe it depends on who you ask. You either believe that there are two legitimate national championship teams this year or there are 25. So if you're in the two camp, then you say, OK, Gonzaga and Baylor have far and away set themselves apart from every other team. And the other 25 teams are, you know, in the next basket and it doesn't really matter or you say, okay, the parity is so great this year. Even, you know, Gonzaga has been played tough by a few of those teams in that next mix, and Baylor has been played tough by a few of those teams, and so anybody can win it. So I think that that kind of informs the answer. Do you believe that Gonzaga and Baylor are far and away better than everybody else, or do you think that it's more like, okay, anybody in the top 25 has a legitimate chance? Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I, I would just say I would just say that, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, things are different this season due to limited crowds and attendance and and so home, you know, home court advantage is you know sort of null and void right now. But I don't care if you're Gonzaga, Baylor, Houston, Our Lady of the Lake. I think it's good. I think you're gonna be hard pressed to for any team to beat Wichita State inside the roundhouse by more than 10. Like, I don't care who you are. And I that can even be a mediocre Wichita State team. I think it's hard. I think it's difficult to beat a shocker team by that many points inside the roundhouse. So when I saw that as far as Houston being a 10-point favorite coming into uh, to Charles Koch Arena on Thursday night, that really surprised me. You know, at the end of the day, if the Cougars get the win, I won't be surprised I mean, I'll be disappointed, but I won't be super surprised by that because I think it could go either way. But a 10-point victory is pretty resounding, and I'm just not sure that uh, that's going to be the outcome. Regardless, though, it's a massive game for Wichita State. Blake, did you have one more thing? So, Well, I was just going to say, and I know that it's not, not something that we would like to bring up, obviously, but Wichita State did lose to Missouri by 10 at the Roundhouse this season. So it can happen. I'm not picking it to happen, not predicting it to happen, but um, that they've only got two double-digit losses all season. That one and then obviously Memphis when they just couldn't shoot the ball. I mean, if you score 52 points, you're just not going to win, and you're probably going to get blown out. Not because you played bad, just because you can't. You, they had a ice cold day shooting, and they didn't. They didn't score enough points to win. But it has happened before. That's all I'm saying. Well, and that that's why I said it'd be hard to beat the Shockers by more than 10 because um, they did <laughs> oh, they did lose okay. by 10 exactly against Missouri. It's all about the semantics and the verbiage, right? That's oh, kind of yeah, they're, they're. sure. So this game against like the, uh, Houston. You, you sound like the lawyer of the group, Tommy. <laughs> I'm taking my cues from you. This game will be on ESPN2 on Thursday night uh, as Wichita State takes on Houston in this massive American Conference matchup. 
You want to talk about some titillating basketball. It is currently a slobber knocker as we are recording this podcast as the Kansas Jayhawks are leading the Kansas State Wildcats with just over a minute left in the first half by a score of 18 to 15. And actually, Woo! as I say that, Yuck. they just made they just made a three-pointer, so it's actually 21-15. Uh, Kansas is leading the Wildcats. But regardless, in offensive uh, in offensive outpouring, this is not inside of Bramlage Coliseum <laughs> between the Jayhawks and the Wildcats. We got a lot to get to as we talk KU and K-State, kind of away from the Sunflower Showdown, but also talking about that sort of as it's going on. Um, I'm not sure why anybody would be surprised by this. And Weston, I'll start with you. Even when you've got a great Kansas team and a terrible Kansas State team, uh, it's always difficult for the Jayhawks to go inside a Bramlage crowd or not and resoundingly beat the Wildcats. Are you surprised by this early score of 21-15 late in the first half? No, no, definitely does not surprise me the way Kansas has been playing this year. Does not surprise me the way Kansas State has been playing this year. And then the just the history between Kansas and Kansas State, it just always seems like, you know, just one of those sloppy, you know, slow-paced turnovers, missed shots. I mean, that just always seems to be the Kansas-Kansas State matchup. I don't know if it's because of the energy followed by nerves of the players or what, but it uh, does not surprise me one bit, and, and particularly this year with, with both teams just not putting the product on the floor that we've seen in years past. Well, these teams have combined so far to go one for 18 from the three-point line, and I'm really surprised that Kansas is not leading by more. If you'd have told me that Nigel Pack would come out and go one for five and have only essentially what they got 61%, uh, 61, 61 seconds left in the first half, 61%. Nobody's shooting 61% in this game unless it's from the free throw line, that's for sure. So if you would have told me with a minute left that Nigel Pack is 1 for 5 and Kansas State is 0 for 11 from the three-point line, I probably would have thought that KU was leading by a little bit more. Gordon's having a nice day. If you're a Jayhawk fan, it's great to see Jalen Wilson. He has really come on in the last few games. He's got 11 points and six rebounds. And KU has been able to hold this lead despite David McCormick kind of being a non-factor in this first half. He's averaged 16 points per game over the last five, been a really critical part of KU's offense. He's only got three shot attempts today, but uh, KU starting to pull away at the free throw line a little bit. They've outscored Kansas State 9-1 to at the free throw line. And so Kansas State leading, uh, trailing by seven after another Gordon jumper. Dewan Gordon has been fantastic in this game, 10 points on five of eight shooting. But I would have thought coming in that Nigel Pack would have had, had a, a really good game for Kansas State to be this close. I mean, obviously, if you use, lose both halves by seven, you lose by 14, and that's really not that close. But um, can KU, it, it definitely seems to me, Tommy, forcing eight first-half turnovers – they have and they lead points off turnovers 15 to 4. So Kansas State has turned eight KU turnovers into only four points. It feels like there's a, a missed opportunity here to lead by a little more. Now they're getting a little flurry here down the stretch with baskets and free throws on three straight possessions, but it just seems like you know, KU could have had could have pushed the lead a little bit further, but um, you know, a nice little blitz here at the end to lead by nine at the half. 
Yeah, so at halftime, uh, as we're recording this, obviously by the time this episode drops, you'll all know what the final score is, and so will we. But at halftime, the Jayhawks have a nine-point lead, 26-17. to Currently on pace for a final score of 52 to 34, um, which which is absolutely Nasty. brutal. But I, I that that does lead me as far as the offensive output for Kansas is concerned. We'll talk about Kansas State here in a couple of moments. But offensively for Kansas, I, I don't know if you guys caught this, but I watched Bill Self on an episode of another podcast uh, with Jeff Goodman and uh, I think Rob Doster was the other host. Uh, he was on earlier this week talking about a lot of different things. It was a really it was a long like a thirty minute long interview with Bill Self, and it was really good stuff. But one of the things he talked about was kind of the offensive output and how things are different for this Kansas team this year as opposed to last year when you had guys like Devon Dotson and, and Yudoka Azabuke. And one of the things that Coach Self talked about was how with Doak out on the court, uh, every time the ball, or even before the ball came to Doak, Doak's man had to stay on him. Like there was there, nobody could help off of Doak. That you just couldn't do it because of how dominant Doak was down low. This year, uh, teams are realizing that you can help off of David McCormick a little bit more than you could Doak, making it really difficult for guys like Marcus Garrett and Christian Brown and other drivers to get into the paint and shoot at the rim. It's just more difficult to do that when we've seen guys like Devon Dotson do that in years past, Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, all those guys drive to the rim in years past. It's been a lot more difficult for the players to do that this year because teams are realizing they can help a little bit more at the rim than they were able to do in years past. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we look at guys like Marcus Garrett and we, you know, we, we see him drive the ball in and it gets rejected or he misses bunnies or the layups are always contested and they're not dropping like they did for guys like Frank Mason and Devontae Graham. And I think the, the knee jerk reaction is to say, well, Marcus Garrett isn't good at that, or that's not Marcus Garrett's game, or he needs to be more off ball or, or whatever. Um, I, I'm wondering what your take on that is. And Blake, I'll start with you. Uh, I, that's coming from Bill Self himself. Um, what, what's your reaction to that as far as the way that the Kansas offense has to run this season? And does that contribute to kind of the log jam that we've seen, kind of the really difficult time that the Jayhawks have scoring the basketball? I would say it possibly, and I would never point out or argue that David McCormick is as good of a player as Yudoka Azubuki was. That's just that's just a fallacy, absolutely false. I would my first inclination, my first response or question that I would ask Bill Self if I had him on the show. Which, by the way, Tommy, why don't you why don't you go ahead and, and work on that for us for next week? That'd be great. I'll do my um, best. I appreciate it. Um, it, it my first question would be is it possible that KU is just the guards that we have this year are not as good of passers off the dribble as we have had in the past because guys like uh Frank Mason Dotson they were really good at drawing the double team when they got into the lane and then finding the open guy on the pass and I'm wondering with the extra turnovers that KU has had this year maybe we are not as good I don't I don't think of Garrett as being as good of a passer. The stats may not bear that out, but th that's the first thing that I think of Weston is that maybe KU is not quite as good of a passing team off the dribble in the painted area as in the past. Certainly if McCormick plays better, the offense is going to open up more as teams will have to sag 
on him and, and be able to help off of him less. And I, he's certainly not as an athletic and as dominant of a finisher around the rim. Well, let's be honest. Yudoka Azubuke makes a lot of average passes fine. When you can just basically throw it up within a two-yard radius of the basket and Yudoka is just going to, okay, I'll just reach out here and just dunk it. That's fine. He made so many bad passes look like highlight real plays last year. You know, Let's give the big man a little bit of credit too. Um, he was absolutely phenomenal. McCormick is definitely not that kind of a finisher around the basket yet. But if he improves, I think he can get closer to that and that will help Kansas when they are driving off the dribble with Brown or Wilson or Garrett or these other guys that want to use their Abaji who want to use their dribble to get to the basket you know first of all uh thoughts to big doke I don't know if you guys saw the gruesome injury that uh yeah guys uh I guess last week um but yeah no it's interesting because there's some give and take though right I mean, we have some guys that you can see have had the ability. Jalen Wilson at moments has shown he can be an incredible passer, and then at he times he was the Big Twelve look, newcomer of the of the week. Yeah, right. absolutely. But you know, I mean, and it's there's some guys that have that innate ability to find other people on the floor when it doesn't appear to be there. There's a difference between that and, and then the the Division One basketball player who certainly knows when to make an appropriate pass because the play is developed in that manner. That's two separate things, right? Um, and, and kind of to your point, Blake we've had some guys that just had that innate ability to find a guy when it doesn't necessarily look like that guy is open or there or throw it to a spot and let a guy go get it. We just don't have that with this team, but there are some other aspects to this team that make me go, well, you know, I would think that getting to the rim would be maybe a little bit more easy. You know, I get that David McCormick isn't that presence inside, but he has shown that he can shoot in a 15 foot radius pretty well. And I'm kind of surprised. And I guess the, the problem is, is yes, he's shown he can do it and in an effective manner. But I think most coaches are still going to say, we will absolutely, if we lose because David McCormick hits 15, you know, 10, 15. Oh, you'll pick that poison all, all day for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. So the fact that he has that skill set doesn't really translate into helping open up the lane. But then on the flip side, we have more, shooters this year and i guess i'm more mean in a sense of more guys who want to look to shoot first so that's kind of does a couple things right you like you would think on one hand that that's going to open up the lane if you've got more shooters that teams feel like they can't come off of the problem has been consistency right we have i think of brown i think of ochai um you know certainly wilson have shown very moments where they're get really hot and then moments where they go really cold. So I think again, most teams are going to say, you know what? We'll take a chance that one of those guys get hot and we're not going to say you can't leave him. You're not a no help guy. You can go help in the lane. Um, And then of course, on the flip side, when you have guys that tend to look to shoot first, whether the lane is open or not, I think that's also part of it. You're just not going to see, you know, and it's weird because as you've watched the season, you can kind of, to me, it seems like you can tell Bill's had those conversations. We need to get into the lane to open up other aspects of a game. I feel like you've seen Garrett be more aggressive recently. You've seen Brown go to the rim more aggressively instead of just taking the shot, even though he is a, he's going to be always going to be a shooter first guy. So there's just a, there's just a lot going on. And I just, I can't, I don't want to just pin it on, you know, 
obviously McCormick not being that presence of Doak, um, but that it all certainly plays into it as well. I mean, well, yeah, the more thing. consistent three-point shooting would be nice too. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing about, about David McCormick. And I want to go back to, and, and I don't want this to be a, you know, harp on David McCormick's show. I feel like we've done that in past episodes, but one of the conversations that you guys had a week ago, kind of the debate, I think Weston, you had said that McCormick has played pretty horribly and Blake, you're like, no, he's, 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 he's scored, you know, 20 plus points in however many games, you know, kind of going back and forth on that. The question with David McCormick is not his athletic ability. It's not his talent. It's not even his consistency. It's the efficiency at what, at which he scores for this Kansas team. Now it's pretty hard when you're following a guy like Yudoka Azabuke, who took all of these high percentage shots and dunked the ball every single time he, he touched it. That's not what David McCormick's game is, but I found this stat that I think is really interesting. And I think it really sheds light on the frustration that I think Kansas fans have had with David McCormick this season. There have been, and I don't know if you guys saw this, there have been 28 players that have played for Kansas in the Bill Self era, going all the way back to 2003, that have averaged more than 10 shots a game uh, throughout the course of the entire season. So number one on that list is Devontae Graham. Back in the 2017-28 season, he averaged... Uh, 12.8 uh, shots uh, per game, but he he played 37.8 minutes a game. You've also got guys like Frank Mason, who's number two on that list. Devon Dotson's on there. Sharon Collins. Svi Mikhailuk is on there. Wayne Simeon. Uh, Andrew Wiggins. Brandon Rush. Thomas Robinson. You get the idea. Perry Ellis is on the list. Number 28 on that list is David McCormick. So David McCormick is one of the 28 players in the Bill Self era that has averaged 10 or more shots a game. Right now he's averaging 10.4 shots per game, but he has by far played the fewest minutes per game out of those 28 players. He's averaged 22 minutes a game where all of these other guys are averaging in the thirties or high twenties. So he's not playing a ton of minutes. He's playing 22 minutes a game on average, and he is launching the ball every time he gets it. And so I think that's the problem. If he was knocking down all those shots, he's averaging 13 points a game. If you're going to shoot it at that clip, then you better be averaging more points than 13 per game. That's not a bad number at all, but it could be a lot better if he was more efficient. And so I think that that's part of the problem that Jayhawk fans have with what David McCormick is doing. It's like every time he's in the game, he's going to shoot it. And a lot of them are, you know, close up, but he's he doesn't have the kind of efficiency that Yudoka Azabuke had. Thoughts on that? I mean, nobody is going to, and he's shooting. Coming into this week, he's he's got the fifth best field goal percentage in the Big 12. Fifth best. So, I mean, how much more efficiently do you want him to be shooting? I think the post-defense this year, relative to what Yudoka Azubuki had to go up against, is a little bit better. Obviously, McCormick is much less of a player than Yudoka Azubuki was. There, I mean, there's no question. I don't want this to turn into a McCormick is better than Azubuki. He's not, no. period. But, I mean, he's shooting 49% from the field. I mean, you don't have... KU fans, if they don't like David McCormick, here's the deal. You're spoiled. 
because you don't people don't go and shoot 70%, 80% in games even if they're shooting in the paint. That doesn't happen. You don't but even as a Buki, but even even as a Buki was not shooting it as like he, Doke was nowhere on that list as far as average number of field goals. Like he was not shooting it as much as David McCormick is, and Udoka was averaging significantly more points than David McCormick is currently. Well, well I mean, he, like I said, McCormick's fifth. He's fifth in the league in field goal percentage. I mean, do you want him to shoot sixty percent? I mean, do you want him to not shoot when he gets the ball in where he should be scoring? Well, here's he's not problem. scoring on those opportunities. He he is. He's he's in the top twenty in the conference in scoring. But again, look, we're we're having a conversation about you know field goal percentage, and it, it's all relative, right? Because the problem is the game of basketball is not played that way anymore. You are not going to win only shooting sixty percent. You know, with the twenty shots. From two, that's just not the way the game's played anymore, it, you know. And you, unless you are of a field goal percentage like Azabuki, you probably should never being a, allow someone to take the number of shots that David. And it's not even an allow. Like I get its game flow and those kind of things, but again, it goes to efficiency. And the three point shot is more efficient than the two point shot in today's game of basketball. So when you are shooting sixty percent, that's a high number, but it's not high enough to justify the volume taken for a two-point shot. You want to know why the Jayhawks were a national title contender one year ago? It's because the shots that they relied on were three-pointers and dunks, three-pointers and dunks, three-pointers and dunks. That's it. They weren't settling for long twos. They weren't settling for 15 footers from David McCormick. Now, I understand that his game is not Yudoka Azabuke. I understand that they've got a little bit of a lack of depth and lack of production in the post. Uh, I don't think Mitch Lightfoot should see another minute on the floor in Big 12 play. Um, he's not contributed at all. In fact, at one point, I think it was it was one of the Iowa State games. I don't remember which one it was that was back-to-back. But at one point, his stat line was like, Zero six shooting, zero rebounds, zero assists, like three turnovers and two fouls. And I'm like, why are we playing Mitch Lightfoot? I like Mitch Lightfoot, but why are we playing Mitch <laughs> Lightfoot? So I understand that the personnel is different right now than what Kansas had a year ago. Um, but this team should be launching the three because as Weston said, they've got the shooters. They've got Brown. They've got Ochai. They've got Wilson. They're streaky, but they've got them and they need to be scoring at the rim. That's where this team can win basketball games and not be trading, you know, big 12 teams that are shooting the three and making them and then trying to feed the post with David McCormick every single time, I guess is my only point. So again, we're at halftime right now with the Sunflower Showdown. Um, you know, guys, this is a little bit of a different conversation with Kansas than we had with Wichita State because obviously we know the Jayhawks are making the tournament. But the conversation now is where will the Jayhawks be seated? I mean, right now, of course, they fell out of the top 25. They're back in this week at number 23. Uh, looks like people like Joe Lenardi have them pegged as somewhere around a five or six seed. And we've got a few games left in the big 12 season. We know that this sunflower showdown is a must win for the Jayhawks because then they have a really tough stretch with three ranked opponents to end the big 12 season. So Blake, I'll start with you where realistically should we be looking for the Jayhawks to be seeding wise when the NCAA tournament comes around? 
If Kansas wins out, they'll be a two or a three seed. My guess is that they're going to be, I don't think that they will win out. I think that that stretch is going to be too difficult. But if they went out and win the Big 12 tournament, they'll be a two or a three seed. My guess is that they're going to be a four or on the four or five line. If you're optimistic, you'd say the four line. I think that they can get above Texas right now. I think that they're going to be uh, in, in that if you think they can get above Texas and West Virginia, then you think that they're going to be on the three and four line. I, I'm guessing that it's going to be a round of four seed, maybe a five for Kansas. If they don't play well down the stretch, then you're looking at a, at a seven, eight, nine seed for the Jayhawks. Weston, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, there's not much to add to that. I mean, I think absolutely, you know, a four or five seed, I think, is where they're going to be. I do think the selection committee will be favorable to the Big Twelve. You know, and, and I'll be honest, right? I mean, I think blue bloods tend to be to get a little extra consideration, and not because they are blue bloods, but I think it's just hard to shake. You know, the notion that so and so is not good. Now we're going to see a, not this know, year. A, in, interesting field. That's right. But when they are good, you know what I'm saying. I think Kansas does get a slight bump. Um, just in people's mind because they are so historically good that, that that's going to help them get that that four or five seed in and, and the resume supports it. But um, yeah, I, I think four or five is is right where they're going to be. And if I if you made me bet on it, I'd bet on a four seed. Yeah, you know, so I really think that these last three games for the Jayhawks, and obviously, we, as of recording this, we don't know if uh, Kansas is going to win the Sunflower Showdown or not, um, but. I think that they can I think that they can get by Texas Tech at home. I think they can even get by Texas on the road. Obviously Baylor is going to be a different story. That's inside Allen Fieldhouse on senior day for the Jayhawks. That's going to be a big matchup, but we all know how just dominant Baylor is. Now, they haven't played basketball in quite a while due to another shutdown for the program. So we'll see exactly how they look coming out of that shutdown. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the Jayhawks go two and one in their final three games in the Big 12. I agree with you. I think a four seed is probably where Kansas will end up. I think that Jayhawk fans should be pretty happy with a four seed, at least I'm going to be pretty happy yeah. with a four seed. I think a five seed is all right. That's fine. A six seed. I just don't. That's I, I don't like that. I, I That's prime upset in the first round territory. I mean, I, so is a four seed and a <laughs> oh, five yeah, seed, let's be honest, but you never know. Uh, yeah. KU's never been upset in the first round as a three seed before. Well, true. That's a I very good I, point. I but think I think I, a four seed is probably realistic. I think the last time, and this isn't current because I'm not looking at it currently, but the last time I had checked bracketology, Joe Lenardi had Kansas playing Belmont. Great. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what? Bring on Belmont. I hope that I would love to play <laughs> Belmont and, and have KU beat them by a hundred. That's what I would like. Bring I just don't like beats. any team that Kansas faces. I don't like any team that Kansas faces in the first round that their name starts with a B, like Bucknell or Bradley or a team like that. Right. I mean, do, do you really feel great about second round losses? I mean, the, yeah, first round losses in my mind are the only way that Kansas basketball has a failure of a season is if they don't make the tournament or lose in the first round. But I mean, really, do we really feel really great about that UNI loss in the second round? I mean, you know, true. The, that 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 was terrible. Gut red hated that? that loss. What was that kid's name? Ali Farokmanish? Was that is that his yeah, name? Yeah, 
I mean, I, I don't care. I'm I'm still trying to erase his memory. But yeah, I think it's Farouk Nathla, whatever. I don't want to say I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that name uh, for as long as I live. Uh, so as of right now in the Sunflower Showdown, the second half is underway. Uh, Christian Brown is shooting free throws. I'm not going to give you the play-by-play, but uh, it looks like the Jayhawks have an eight-point lead right now, 27-19. to 19. We'll give you another update on this game in just a few minutes or so. Let's transition into some K-State talk. Obviously, the Sunflower Showdown is still going on right now, but that's not really the, the direction of the conversation uh, as far as this game is concerned for Kansas State. It's more of what Blake alluded to a week ago, and that was that Gene Taylor, athletic director for Kansas State, reaffirmed his commitment to Bruce Weber as head coach next season for the Kansas State Wildcats. So, um, Weston, I'm going to start with you. You know, uh, Gene Taylor came out pretty strong in defense of his head coach. I know you alluded to it last week, how big of a fan you are uh, as far as continuity of the head coach in a program. Do you still stand by that, or are you surprised that it looks like as of now, Bruce Weber will continue on in Manhattan? Well, I mean, yes, I, I I like continuity of the head coach, but I've said on this podcast before that I thought, you know, the time for Bruce Weber was up at, at Kansas State. And, um, you, you know, I think, again, going back to the continuity, though, I, I don't know if the athletic director, how much involvement he has or conversations he had with some of those guys. Um, and it's probably not direct conversations, but just a feel from particularly those freshmen, um, you know, and whatever incoming freshmen you have about, you know, their relationship with Bruce Weber, how it's going, how things are. And I don't, you know, I would have to say to some degree, he's got to have a sense of that heartbeat of that team of what's going on, wh- how they're responding to Bruce Weber and, and what, what you want to build off of. Right. Cause you certainly don't, if you lose Bruce Weber and for instance, you lose Nigel pack because Bruce Weber's gone, you know, you're just setting yourself back even more, especially if there's not a big name out there that you think you're going to get, or you have your eye on a, on a more mid tier guy. That's an up and coming coach. Um, you know, if, if that market's just not there continuing or firing your coach just for the sake of bringing in someone new is not necessarily the right thing to do. But again, I, I, I am very surprised that he said this. I thought for sure his time was done uh, in Kansas state, particularly you know, as we've talked about the uh, the loss to Fort Hayes State, followed by some really bad basketball after that. So, uh, pretty pretty surprised by this decision. But I again, I'll, I'll certainly stand by continuity. I think the the longer you can keep a head coach around, I think that's better to build relationships within the program and, and recruits moving forward. If you want to believe that Bruce Weber is not the answer for Kansas State. There is information out there that would lead you to believe that. They've lost 12 games in a row, which I believe is the the worst stretch in Kansas State basketball history. If you don't want Weber, you'll point out that these are the by far the two worst seasons of his career. He's never had back-to-back losing seasons until this year, and he will register back-to-back losing seasons once this year is complete. Since being the runner-up at the NCAA tournament in 2005, they've gone five and nine at the NCAA tournament. Three of those wins came in the Elite Eight run when they had to beat number 16 UMBC Bank, Creighton, and Kentucky. And they probably should have beaten Loyola Chicago to go to the Final Four that year. And you would also point out that the 2018 Elite Eight run was kind of a fluke because they didn't have to play Virginia in the second round. Because UMBC beat them, which they should, you know, obviously there's no planet on which they should not be playing Virginia in the second round. If you are a person that wants Bruce Weber to be the coach, there is plenty of information you can pull on that would inform that decision as well. 
He made the Elite Eight in 2018. It hadn't been done since 2010. And before that, it was 1988 when Kansas State made the Elite Eight. Bruce Weber has five NCAA tournament appearances in nine years. He's got more appearances in the NCAA tournament than Frank Martin. I don't remember hearing a lot of people clamoring for Frank Martin to get fired because they weren't winning enough. His winning percentage is lower. He has two more conference championships than Frank Martin. And you would also point out Weber's never had back-to-back losing seasons as a head coach. Nigel Pack is a great talent, 13 points per game. He's second in assists. He's got 63 assists, 33 turnovers coming in to this game in the Sunflower Showdown. He leads the team in steals. There are pieces coming back for Kansas State that should excite you about being a Wildcat basketball fan. So if you like Weber, you will find those reasons that you'd want him to stick around. If you don't like Weber, if you've never liked Weber, then you're going to point to the near future of the last two, uh, uh, to the recent past of the last two seasons and say, Kansas State is moving in the wrong direction. We got to get out. So whatever your mindset is, there is information to back up the way that you think. You know, I came on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and I said there was no chance in hell. Those are my words exactly. No chance in hell that Bruce Weber would return as coach for the Wildcats next season. Clearly, I was wrong because Gene Taylor (laughs) has basically put all that to rest. And I'm surprised by that. Not surprised that ultimately Bruce Weber has stayed at Kansas State or will stay at Kansas State, but surprised that Gene Taylor came out so defiantly and and basically just said nope he's he's staying because most athletic directors in the situation that Kansas State is in right now would have had some sort of politically correct answer of saying you know we'll evaluate at the end of the season or you know we know that the results are not where you know our fans expectations are and we'll have a conversation with the coach at the end of the season blah 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 and Gene Taylor just basically said nope uh, nope. Bruce Weber's our guy. He's he's coming back. He's going to be the coach. And that was a little bit surprising to me as far as the tactic and the strategy was because I, and I get it's continuity. I get it's recruiting. It's it's you know signaling to the incoming class that you know Bruce Weber is is not going anywhere. But here's what's interesting is that I would I would venture to guess and maybe you guys can think of somebody that's more like this than Bruce Weber. I don't think that there is a more polarizing coach in college basketball at a national level among his own fan base than Bruce Weber is at Kansas State University. And it's, you know, I I would say even at the, the height of this success that Bruce Weber has had over the years at Kansas State, the Elite Eight run, the the Big 12 championships, there was still a pretty vocal section of Kansas State fans that were anti-Bruce Weber during that time. And obviously that division grows and ebbs and it flows depending on the success of the year, you know, for Kansas State. I'm not so sure that there's another coach in college basketball at a national level that is constantly his merits as coach are being debated year in and year out as far back as when he replaced Frank Martin. What was that back in 2011 or 2012? When it was Bruce 2012, Weber came in? 2013 was the first year. And I think you're, I actually think you're right, Tommy, because I've talked to Kansas state fans and they they will tell me, you know, 
I have never liked Bruce Weber. I didn't like the hire, and I don't like him now. And there are other fans that say, hey, you know, look at what he's done for the program. Like, are you more interested in being right about Bruce Weber, or are you more interested in just supporting Kansas State men's basketball? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think that the, the one argument that I would make more than any other argument about why it's time to move on from Bruce Weber is not even about the results on the court. Now, we know that that's ultimately where, you know, the buck stops, the wins and losses and how the team is performing. <laughs> Unless you're talking but, about KU football. Very true. But I would say that the, the the reason why it's time to move on is because when you look at the fan base for Kansas State, I can guarantee you, of course, the Sunflower Showdown is going on right now as we speak, as we're recording this. I guarantee you that there are there is a huge section of Kansas State basketball fans, some of which because the game is on ESPN Plus, but a huge section of fans are not watching the game. They checked out. They're done following the team for the rest of the season. They're probably done following the team until something of merit brings them back in. The one thing about Kansas State basketball, it's different than like a a Jayhawks basketball, is that the fan support is a roller coaster, right? It's never consistent. And of course, Kansas fans have been spoiled all these years, but year in and year out, the support is there. For Kansas State basketball, it's not. And so if if Gene Taylor and the athletic department, if they want to stop that roller coaster, or at least attempt to stop the roller coaster, they might have to start from scratch, but they need to find a coach that can rally the fan base to say, stick with us consistently. Not just when we're going to the Elite Eight, not just when we're Big 12 champions, but when we are struggling and rebuilding and don't just check out and ignore us and don't follow us until we're good again, because that's not going to do anybody any good. And, and it's been proven over his tenure at Kansas state that Bruce Weber, number one is polarizing and number two does not get the fan or the donor support. Not only when the team is bad, but even when the team is pretty good, he's not getting the full support. So if I were Gene Taylor, I would say we need to evaluate this and then not just the results on the court, but also we need to just overall improve the culture of Kansas State basketball in general. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any follow up on that. The only thing I'll add, and this is I'm not backing this by any type of statistics, more just my experience with Kansas State fans, and and maybe because I don't I don't have friends with a lot of other fan bases other than Kansas State, Kansas. I I went to law school at UMKC, so a little bit of Mizzou, but maybe more so than any other fan base that I've met, Kansas State fans love to complain about Kansas State and still support it wholeheartedly, though. So I actually my pushback, Tommy, would be. I think it doesn't matter who's there. The Kansas State fans love to complain about Kansas State basketball and yet support it or watch, you know, go to games anyways. And maybe you've got some numbers to be like, no, Weston, you're, you're clearly wrong. Um, but, you know, that's been my experience, it seems like, with that fan base. I mean, well, I just I, would I, I would answer that. Well, can I, let, let me answer your question really quick, Weston. As far as the the big name donors, I mean, it's coming straight from Gene Taylor's mouth himself. He says, and I quote, and these are the high dollar donors. He says, some are Bruce supporters and some aren't, to be honest with you. It's, it's as simple as that. And that's not just this season. That's been all time in the Bruce Weber tenure. You're never going to get 100% of the fan base around you, but I'd like to think that maybe there's somebody out there that's not going to make the fan base or the donor base as divided as Bruce Weber has at Kansas State. 
But that's kind of I my mean, point. My, that's kind of my point, though. Is he's? I mean, is he saying though that those donors who don't support Bruce Weber are they now? Are, has he said they're not donating to the basketball program or to Kansas State athletics? Because if they, that's kind of my point. Is if they're they're like, hey, we don't love Bruce Weber. By the way, here's a check to upgrade athletic depart you know facilities. That's kind of representative of what I'm saying, I guess. But I, you know, and I get we don't know that, so there's no point in going down that that rabbit hole. But that that's just my thought. I mean, I think it's really interesting because I, I do have some numbers. Back in 2015, 2016, they, uh, Kansas State went 17 and 16. They were 5 and 13 in the Big 12. Their average attendance was 11,903. You go to the Elite Eight season, I think it was, that um, they were here. Let's go to 2018, 2019. They were 25 and 9, 14 and 4 in the Big 12. And their average attendance was actually down to 10,640. So you can read this one of two ways. You can take the timing perspective and say, Kansas State doesn't have support. Or you can argue, well, the capacity is only about 12,400. They've always got support. They're averaging 10,000 fans, whether they're good or bad. So I think that you can use those statistics to justify your position. Either way, I would be more of the, you know, more aligned with Weston and say, you know, people are coming out, and if they can put ten thousand people in the stands every year, even when it's not a good team, uh, that speaks more to Kansas State's, you know, I guess support. Now, last year, obviously, um, they only averaged eight thousand four hundred. It was it was a bad year, and I'm sure this year, if they would have be allowed to have more fans in, it would have been even worse of a tentative year. But you know, just going back. If you take out the last two years, the attendance has been fairly consistent just for the last few that I've been looking at it, you know, between 10,500 and 11,500 in there. So we have a little bit of, in my opinion, a reversal of the roles here just a bit because, you know, I've been on the record saying that Bruce Weber should should not return at Kansas State. But rather than Weston riding the fence, it sounds like Weston is pro Bruce Weber sticking around at Kansas state while Blake is the one who is kind of riding the fence because Blake, you just said in your, (laughs) in your, uh, in your monologue at the very beginning of this about if you're looking to find reasons why you want him gone, they're there. If you're looking to find reasons to keep him there, there. So you're kind of on the fence with this. Do you have an opinion one way or another? Should Bruce Weber continue being the head basketball coach at Kansas state? I was the athletic director at Kansas state. I would hire a new coach. I didn't like the Bruce Weber hire when it was made. I watched his team quit on him at Illinois. I was watching Nebraska, up there in Nebraska, covering the Cornhuskers. So I watched a lot of Nebraska basketball, and that Illinois team was done with Bruce Weber. They were done with his orange blazers. They were done with this because he was yelling at them the exact same way he yells at the Kansas State players. And the Illinois players like I cannot wait till we get to the end of this season and we don't have to listen to this guy anymore because they quit on him. And I have never and- forgotten that. Now, I'm not saying that Kansas State has done that because you look at Kansas State's results in this 12-game losing streak. They lost by three to Texas. They lost by seven to Oklahoma State. They played Texas Tech to nine. So I feel like they're still playing hard for him. So that informs my decision. And it's a little bit – it's not the same to me because that Illinois team should not have been nearly as bad as they were. That, that was preposterous that they underperformed to that level. But you know, if I was the athletic director at Kansas State, I would make a change. There have been players on this Kansas State team, not this season, but in seasons past that have 
gotten into it with Bruce Weber. I don't want to know. I don't want to yes. say that they've quit on him necessarily, but even as recently as a year ago, Weston, you and I talked about on an early episode of the podcast about Cartier Jara and the, the mm. conflict that he had with Bruce Weber, obviously Marcus Foster, who was as oh, talented yeah. of a player in Manhattan as you will ever have left the program entirely. And obviously there are two sides to every story, but it has happened in Manhattan as well. I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy, but this is something that I do think is interesting. Of course, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about athletic departments around the country. You know, Manhattan's not the only place that this is going on. And it's happening in Lawrence too, and all over the place where athletic departments are dealing with a major budget shortfall because of the pandemic and money is extremely tight right now. Bruce Weber will be owed a buyout if he is fired. And so that there might be financial implications to uh, there will be financial implications if a change is made at the head coaching position. Now, I did read that if Gene Taylor fires Bruce Weber before April 30th, then Weber is owed $2 million. And if he's fired after May 1st, he's only owed $1 million. So maybe this is Gene Taylor biding some time. Although it doesn't sound like it from the words that Gene Taylor had used in that interview just a couple of weeks ago. So at that the end would of the be day, a major curveball if he did that. That would be incredible. Yeah. So there are some financial implications uh, to a change being made. And as of right now, according to Gene Taylor uh, from Kansas State University, Bruce Weber will remain the coach for the foreseeable future for the Kansas State Wildcat basketball team. Here's a quick update on the Sunflower Showdown. Kansas leads Kansas State by 10, 36-27. And as I say that, the Wildcats just hit a three-pointer, so it's down to a seven-point lead for the Jayhawks, 36-29, with about 11 minutes to go. That'd be their first three of the game. game. If they hit a three, that's their first three of the game in like 15 tries. Yep, about 11 minutes remaining in that game. Of course, we'll give you another update here in the moments to come. Let's move away from college hoops here on Keeper of the Games and talk a little bit of baseball. It has been forever since we had talked about Kansas City Royals baseball here on Keeper of the Games. And pitchers and catchers reported on Wednesday, which uh, obviously kicks off spring training around Major League Baseball. But before that day, before pitchers and catchers report, there was a big trade that happened for the Kansas City Royals. Andrew Benintendi from the Boston Red Sox ha- uh, was traded just a few days ago to the Kansas City <clears throat> Royals. One of the biggest, if not uh, the biggest trade that we've seen the Royals execute in the last couple of seasons, it definitely provides a big bat in the line up for the Royals, for Mike Matheny's crew. It also uh, gives the Royals a good replacement in the outfield since Alex Gordon is no longer part of the team. So Weston, I will start with you. I'm sure you've had plenty of time to dissect and to digest this trade. And now Andrew Benintendi is now a member of the Kansas City Royals. Your thoughts on him joining the Royal squad? Look, I absolutely love love the trade. And I tell you what it says about the the spot the Royals are in or where, where the GM thinks that they are is they're ready to contend or at least make a push for the playoffs anyways. Otherwise, you're not trading away assets for a guy who's got two years left on a contract. So I'm excited about that. I think it's great. Um, you know, he's he's shown some serious upside in the past with the Red Sox, but some really good baseball. He's only 26 years old, so potential to, you know, hopefully sign him in a long term if, if things pay off. But uh, you got to be excited about where the Royals think that they are, even if you don't, you know, necessarily not everybody might agree that the Royals are ready to contend. But uh, now quick, quick update, guys. I'm going to do a first on 
the podcast here. I'm going to kick it over to to Blake, and I'm going to step away for a second because I forgot to get my charger and my laptop's going to die. Uh, <laughs> you do that. Well, um, uh, so here's the thing, Tommy. I... Um, I don't want to throw like just ice water on this whole thing, but can we relax on Andrew Benatendi just a little bit? Let's look at the numbers and look at some actual data here. Not going to count 2020 had a rib injury. You're right. This is an absolutely actual, a, a real factual take that's based on real numbers. 2020, we're going to throw out because he only played 14 games. He had a rib injury. 2019, uh, worst batting average season of his career. Uh, 2019, worst on base percentage. Worst, uh, second worst slugging percentage, worst OPS. Uh, didn't have that great of a season. Worst defensive runs saved in 2019. So statistically, he had his worst wins above replacement season out of three full seasons in 2019. A negative D WAR for the first time in his career. Dips in his batting average, on base, slugging, and OPS from 2018. I think he can play, and I I think that he's he's a nice player, but I don't believe that he automatically vaults the Royals into playoff status. I mean, I, he hit on he hit one night, you know, he he didn't play much last year, and I get that. We don't know exactly where he is coming along with the rib cage injury, but just judging on what he did in 2019, you know, let's just slow down on the Royals to the World Series train because of Andrew Benintendi. Well, Hold I have on, a rebuttal uh, to make- that, though. And he- go ahead. Oh, I you was guys just, can't yeah. can't figure out who wants to argue with me first. Yeah, that's right. I I just want to add, you know, and I want to make a distinction of my point. It's not that I'm saying the Royals are going to be a playoff team or to the World Series. Now, I will make that prediction later. But my point was, it's where the Royals how they assess the team as an organization, you know, that's, that's probably what I'm focused on. They think they have a contender and that they're not in, you know, they've got the guys that are ready. So as a, as a fan, I think you always want that, right? Because you're, in baseball, we know how this goes, right? You have to go through a rebuild, you sell off, and it produces a pretty poor product on the field. So at least you're in a position now where the Royals are ready to win, and it's going to create, at a bare minimum, much more exciting games and a much more exciting product on the field uh, as we watch this year and into next. To follow up on that, this is, in my opinion, this trade represents more of a qualitative move for the Royals and their organization than a quantitative move for the Royals and their organization, because it would have been very easy for Dayton Moore and Mike Matheny to sit down and say, you know what? Alex Gordon is retiring. Uh, We've got a couple of prospects that look like eventually they can fill the void of Alex Gordon. So we're going to go ahead and give them left field, uh, you know, for this upcoming season we're still a couple years away in our rebuild. So it's, you know, it's all right. We can, we can let these guys, you know, maybe platoon in left field or see who comes, you know, who comes to play and they'll get the, the full-time starting role. They didn't do that. Instead, they went out and got Andrew Benatendi, who is a proving commodity. Now, whether or not he had a, you know, he's dealing with injuries or having a rough season to me, again, this shows and, and not, not just 
Weston saying that it, it shows a belief in themselves that they can win. But I also think they want to show the fan base that they believe that they can win and they are going to go out and make the moves necessary to do so. And Ben Attendee is not the only one that they've done. Uh, the, the only move that they've made to show that signing Carlos Santana, who I know is probably on the downswing of his career, but still he's a proven commodity as well. They go out and they get him. You know, I think that they have shown we're not just content with having these guys in our farm system who are unproven and we don't know if they're going to make it or not. Just give them a starting role you know, on this team, we want somebody who has proven to come out and play for our squad this season. So to me, it shows they think they're a lot closer to where they need to be than, than what they were a year ago or two years ago, for sure. So that's my, that's my point. As far as Andrew Benatini, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Do you have a rebuttal on that, Blake? I mean, if you want to bring up Carlos Santana, he hit 199 last year. It was the, by far the worst offensive season of his career. He's a he was a proven commodity. This reminds me of when the Royals spent way too much money on Juan Gonzalez and Benito Santiago, which were fantastic oh, players, absolutely tremendous players for the come Texas Rangers on. and for the San Francisco Giants. They were not tremendous players for the Kansas City Royals. It was way too much money. Come One of the on. worst. Two of the worst free agent signings. Carlos Santana hit 199 last year. I mean, what are we talking about? Was Carlos that, Santana is coming in. He's going to rescue the Royals. Was that me? in the Come dead on. ball? Is that in the dead ball era, Blake? Is that when you were watching last back with uh, Juan Gonzalez and Benito I Santiago? Did. I absolutely quit on the. So I I had never been like a, a real hardcore Royals fan, like Jayhawks or Chiefs. But when they signed those two guys, I did. I like I I'm not I'm not going to watch the team implode like this. And they were historically awful for the next few seasons and yeah i i absolutely checked out after those two guys if you want a a, a baseball team and i here's the thing before i even say this i'm i'm not even going to respond to you comparing andrew benintendi and carlos santana to juan gonzalez and benito santiago that's the stupidest that's the worst <laughs> hot take i have heard you make in forever why that is terrible so, because those so guys. Andrew Benatendi was not being compared to those two guys at all. This is about that's Carlos Santana. No, I didn't say Andrew Benatendi is a 26 year old player. Carlos Santana is 34. And those two guys were in their 30s when they were brought in. So, yeah, I, Benatendi I'm, is not being drawn an analogy to those two guys. I'm pretty sure, and, and I'll have to check this and do and come back to this in our corrections and retractions. I'm pretty sure that both Juan Gonzalez and Benito Santiago were in their early 40s when they played for the Royals. I, I, it's it's night and day different. I'm you know Carlos Santana is 34 years old, um, still has some gas left in the tank, I would think. But beyond that, if you, don't you know want that. to. No, beyond that, moving away from that, if you if you're if you're dating more and you believe that your team has the talent to at least attempt to contend in the AL Central, let's not forget in the shortened season last year, they went 26 and 34, which wasn't great, but they contended for a hot minute there in the AL Central. So if they think that there's promise with this squad, 
you should absolutely have guys like Andrew Benatendi and Carlos Santana who have a playoff pedigree. They know how to play in the postseason joining your squad. You know, now they're obviously Salvador Perez is still on that team. He knows how to play in the playoffs, but by and large, this Royal squad is young and inexperienced, especially in the playoffs. So this is Dayton Moore saying, I believe in our team. I believe in the tools. And if we can get there, then I want a couple of veterans on the team that know how to win games in the postseason. And I, I love the move. I think it's a, I think it's a smart move. Do you want to like go the- ahead and look up one Juan Gonzalez's age or do you want me to? No, I'll do he's it. the same wow. age that Carlos Santana is right now. They're both 34. So what are you talking about? If we spend what about any Benito more time Santiago? talking about... Did you look that up? 39. Is, not in his thank 40s. You. Thank How you. many listeners do you think you were... Uh, thank you. You just said he was 45. I say he was 45. Weston, go ahead. I was just going to say I have a feeling we have approximately zero listeners who are in for Juan Gonzalez and Benito Santiago talk on this podcast. But anyways, I, going back to the actual trade itself, I do I like it because to me it's, it's kind of low risk again. And that's ultimately any of these moves. Same with Carlos Santana. You can like it or love it. It doesn't matter. Here's the point is they're not tied to him in a long extended of time. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out and it's no big deal. You thought you were in a if you think we were in a rebuild anyways that's fine same with same with uh ben and tinny we didn't give up a lot at least in my opinion there might be some who are higher on khalil lee than i was um I, you know i just don't i never really i mean obviously he didn't have a any stay with the actual royals and it's just minor league stats but i i just never was impressed with him he's you know small he's going to be a stolen base get on base kind of guy the game's you know has its moments of moving away from that and then frenchy cordero who he gave up you know again he was he was a uh, almost a throwaway last year i mean he had a, he had he was had good moments for us last year but he was brought in via trade as well so i just don't think we gave up much to see if andrew benintendi can be the kind of player that that he has shown he has the potential to be. And I know that's just all talk, right? It's just potential. Um, but anytime the, if the Royals are willing to spend, I will never have a problem with that. Ass- assuming it's not a, you know, gill mesh, lock them up for a long time where it does, <laughs> it does hurt the future of the Royals, right? If you spend money over an extended period of time, but if you, if they just want to have a high payroll for 2021, Cool. I, I don't care as long as it's not huge hurting the future if it doesn't work out by taking the chance on a guy like Carlos Santana, on a guy like Andrew Penantini, you know, on a guy like, you know, we have we talked a little bit. I, don't, I can't even remember if we mentioned, you know, bringing in Michael Taylor from the Na- Nationals uh, or was with the Nationals. Yeah. You know, those kind of things don't bother me if, if as long as the, the organization isn't going to hamstring themselves moving forward. Um, so yeah, I, I but like, it's an also an opportunity cost too, though, Weston. You mean you, you have the cost that money is tied up that you could have tried to get another player. And again, like I'm not trying to to just totally bash on Carlos Santana. If he only had to play the Royals, he he would be the best player of all time because he has crushed the Royals. But his career batting average is 248. I mean, you know, he, he's never batted 300. He has one All Star season. But at what? But here's the thing: opportunity cost. There has to be somebody else, though. You know, no, I, I get it, and again, maybe there you, wasn't. You're the maybe, and the Royals, Royals, as you said, the Royals are, are they? They don't have a New York Mets or a New York Yankees or a Boston Red Sox budget. They've got to play more in the Money Ball. I I get that, 
I understand that. And somebody's got to play first base. And maybe he's going to be really, really awesome defensively. Uh, looking at the D-War real quick. Uh, I mean, his D-War in, in 11 seasons is minus six. So, I mean, yeah, that's I mean, not I, it's fine, sure. I guess. But, but, I mean, and again, you're looking at and, – and I think of, too, the the, the the flip argument in my mind of what I'm pitching is, okay, are you stunting growth of young guys? And at first base right now, it's Ryan McBroom and, and Ryan O'Hearn. They're not they're not a the long-term answer for the Royals at first base. Maybe you guys are some younger guys. But, you know, and, I, and same with the outfield. It's, we've got some young, young guys, and then nobody that has just really panned out. So, I mean, I guess it, it's all that's going to matter. Frankly, again, I'm going to go back to my original point. I'm just excited that the Royals – think that they're in a spot, and I actually think it speaks to their pitching more than anything else. I think they are very excited about their young arms that says we need to capitalize again before these guys become stars and then we have to pay them, knowing that they probably won't be able to. you got to be able to put the bats together with the young, talented arms if you think those arms are ready to be high-end big league starters. Well, good news. If you are playing at home on your bingo card, if you have Gil Mesh, Benito Santiago, and Juan Gonzalez being mentioned on the podcast <laughs> yeah. on your bingo card, you you have you have won a million dollars. Congratulations. Um, cause I guarantee you nobody had that on their at home listening bingo card. We will have a full update on the Royals, a full preview uh, of them in spring training in the coming weeks. It is getting to be that time of year folks. And it's, it's my favorite time of year when spring comes around and baseball season gets going. So again, we'll talk more about the Royals on a future episode. Let's go ahead and get into our Wichita whip around here on keeper of the games. We're keeping with the round Robin format here on the program. And so, uh, uh, let's go with Weston. I will start with you. What is your Wichita whip around topic tonight? Uh, so I, I have two. One's going to not be Wichita related just because I want to mention this. I don't know if you boys saw yeah, this. No, it's not the Wichita. It's not the whatever you want whip around. It's the I know, but listen, it's huge news. I just want to know, did you guys see Tim Tebow announced his retirement from baseball today? No, who cares? Tim Tebow officially retired from professional sports. Now to my Wichita story. Uh, And I'm going to kind of, it's kind of a piggyback. It just came up, but it's a piggyback Blake off of you talking Wichita state shocker baseball last time. Uh, Outfielder Cooper Cornbloom, who now might be my favorite name in all of baseball used to be Franchi Cordero, but now that he's no longer with the Royals, I'm going to move on to uh, Cooper Cornbloom. And then right-handed pitcher, right-handed pitcher, Liam Eddy were named to D one baseball's preseason power rankings. Um, And that's Cooper Cornbloom. Uh, came in at 76th on the top 100 outfield list, which I know 76 seems far off, but I mean, that's a, you know, there's a ton of outfielders in division one baseball. So uh, that's 76th for Cooper Cornbloom and then 87th for Liam Eddy on the top 150 starting pitchers list. So looks like a couple of, uh, you know, early praises for the Wichita State Shocker baseball players. So I'll go Blake, with Newman. Uh, so Newman Baseball, they've been trying to open up the series. It got canceled, postponed it again to Tuesday, February 23rd against Wayne State, a 1 p.m. doubleheader at McCarthy Field. I'm rocking the Newman tonight. Um, 
it's basketball shirt, but it's fine. Coach Mouse, don't yell at me. Um, but that's actually not not my whip around. How about the Friends University Baseball Falcons? They've actually gotten to play baseball. Wichita State was going to play a game against Oklahoma and Texas, and that got postponed. The Falcons are 7-1. and one. They haven't played since February 5th, a two-game sweep of St. Mary. They are heading to the University of Science and Arts in Oklahoma, February 19th in Chickasha for a doubleheader. Next home game, February 23rd against Mid-America Christian. And Jordan Burnett leading the Falcons right now, hitting 375. And Larry Rivera is hitting 346. Seven and one start for your friends, Falcons. Uh, Tommy, as the the two Southwestern Mound Builder alum, do we go ahead and boot Blake off the oh, show for mentioning the friends, oh. Falcons, or... I don't know how we go about this. Builders. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask. I was just gonna ask you, uh, Weston, how you felt about the fact that we had to sit here and listen to talk about French University on the program. You know, uh, I I think I I coined the phrase when I was there. Friends don't let friends go to friends. Um, and then I went ahead and married a girl from the Friends University basketball team. So I've come around on the Friends Falcons. I know my mound builder brethren won't be uh, happy to hear that, but also a, a little fun s- circle around there. Former defensive coordinator for Southwestern College, Dion Manili, is now the head coach of the Friends Falcon football team. And a little birdie on my shoulder has told me that former Southwestern head football coach Ken Crandall has been uh, up in the booth at times as a uh, offensive advisor for Dion. So I've got a lot of connections with the program now. You guys are two and one on the year. So, I mean, you get took two of three from presentation <laughs> college. So hey, there, there we you go. go. That's then a bunch of snow. I did uh, also, I don't know if you saw this, but the former Southwestern and friends head coach, Monty Lewis is now yeah. the head coach at Winfield high school. Uh, so returning down to Winfield, the coach good, of the Vikings, good, which is, I don't know how well you guys know him. He is yeah. a good guy. One of the nicest guys that I ever got to interview on the radio, just an all around good man. And I'm really happy to see that he's landed on his feet here in, in, uh, in South central Kansas. Absolutely. So my Wichita whip around story is all about the Wichita wind surge. Uh, the announcement was made just a few days ago that the wind surge have officially accepted their invitation to become the double A affiliate of the Minnesota twins. We talked about it at length on this program. It was kind of just a matter of, of time. It was a formality, but the wind surge did accept that invitation. And uh, I actually have uh, some, some news that I don't think anybody's reporting on And I guess I'm the source because I got the email today from the Wichita Wind Surge that they expect to have a schedule by next week. So hopefully by next week's program, there will be a Wichita Wind Surge schedule. Um, I was contacted due to... uh, Due to, due to tickets uh, for this season. So they hope to have a schedule here in the next few days. So that's exciting. And then finally with the wind surge, I don't know if you guys saw, they are accepting applications for a mascot. So if either one of you would like to become the Wichita wind surge mascot, applications are now being accepted at this time. <laughs> How warm I, is the costume? I don't, I have no idea. I don't know. I think that could Any be Any interest so, in that? I think, I think that could be, I think that could be some good PR for the uh, KOG pod. I mean, maybe we can, maybe we, maybe it doesn't even have to be one of the three of us. Maybe we can just find, you know, sneak someone in there who's willing to, to give us a shout out. Maybe we need to have a, a say in the application process. <laughs> I also wish, I like I also it. Wish one of us needs to apply. 
I also wish you would have just said according to sources, just so it felt like the the Keeper of the Games podcast <laughs> had sources. <laughs> I'm the source, actually. Yeah, exactly. So that is our uh, Wichita whip around here on Keeper of the Games. Before we get out of here, any corrections, retractions, additions? Blake, I'll start with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd like uh, Tommy is going to apologize uh, for not ringing the hot take horn uh, for accurate takes today because the Carlos Santana uh, take is absolutely accurate. And I know I know you feel really badly about yelling at me like that. So but it, it, it's OK. It's OK, though. Uh, I, I appreciate the apology and uh, and thank you so much for for agreeing with me on that take because it's absolutely right. Weston, how about you? Corrections, retractions, <laughs> additions? I've got nothing. Nothing here, guys. <laughs> nothing to even contribute on that. No, uh, I, I do. I, I do have an addition before we get out of here. Uh, so we've got under two minutes left in the Sunflower Showdown. The Kansas Jayhawks have opened up a 21-point lead over the Kansas State Wildcats. Let's go! The, cur- the current score actually and looks like they just made another three-pointer. So it's now a 24-point lead over the Kansas State Wildcats, 59-35. to 35. If the That's Kansas terrible. State Wildcats, if the Kansas If the Kansas State Wildcats can only put up, if they can put up less than 40 points, at home inside Bramlage against their in-state rival. And Gene Taylor is going to tell you that Bruce Weber is the best choice to coach this team. It's just mind boggling. It's just insane to me. 35 points. Are you kidding me right now? It's not great. It's uh, it's, uh, makes your cell a little bit harder. If you're Mr. Taylor today, that's for sure. Does anybody know if Bill Snyder can coach basketball or what's that situation? Yeah, how did that work out for Kansas State the last few years he was there? Nothing against Bill, you know, Bill Snyder is a legend, but I, I think I think I think his time has come. You know, at this point, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't think Kansas has played their best game. They've only scored 59 points, but the fact that they've only given up 35 points to the Wildcats is just, I mean, that's just there's a minute 23 left in this game. Kansas State isn't going to score 40. They are not going to and, score 40 Tommy, points. We had this discussion about how KU has struggled defensively at times. Now, they've started to play better these last few games. You play Iowa State, that's going to help. You play Kansas State, that probably helps too. But they've played better. But you and I have talked about that, how KU has not played as well defensively this year as they normally do. So for Kansas State to not do that against a bad KU defensive team, that also says something else. Absolutely. Well, that's going to be our show for tonight. Just a reminder to hit subscribe and download, listen to the podcast on all major streaming platforms. Again, we're on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. Basically, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, you can find Keeper of the Games. Right there, our website, cogsports.com, where you can watch episodes there. You can also watch it on YouTube and Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod. That's at K-O-G-Pod. Let's get our personal Twitter handles out there. Blake, I will start with you. For our dear, our dear audio listeners, at B-E Crips, B-E-C-R-I-P-P-S. At Weston, W Mills 94. At W Mills 94. All right. There you go. You can follow me at tweets from Tommy. It looks like the game is just about final for the Sunflower Showdown. Uh, in fact, they're going to run out the clock here. It looks like Kansas State did score over 40. They've got 41 points. Um, but still, it looks face. like 
Looks like final score here is going to be 59 to 41 in the Sunflower Showdown just as we're ending the program. How about that for timing, you guys? That's pretty great. Yeah, not bad. And it looks like with 41 points, Kansas State can keep uh, Bruce Weber, right, Tommy? (laughs) (laughs) I still don't think that's the best move, but we can get into that more on another episode of the podcast. Hope you have a great week. We'll be back next week for another episode of Keeper of the Games. For Blake Cripps and Weston Mills, I'm Tommy Castor. We'll see you next time. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games with Tommy Castor, Weston Mills, and Blake Cripps. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Visit our website at cogsports.com. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games. And follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod. That's K-O-G-Pod.